Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features guitarists Michael Baker and Rory Russell. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sam Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and today my amazing co-pilot is the lovely and wonderful Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you doing today, my dear? Hi, Rosie. I'm doing well. How are you? Not too shabby. It's pretty early in the morning when we're recording today, but that is because our interviewees are all the way over the other side of the Atlantic in the UK. So we have an early start and they have definitely a far more um, humane start to the day. So today <laughs> we are talking to half of the members of the Aquarelle Guitar Quartet. Mike Baker and Rory Russell. Aquarelle is recognized as one of the world's leading guitar quartets, and they're a dynamic and innovative group known for extraordinary ensemble and performance, expansive repertoire, and groundbreaking work in developing the guitar quartet medium. Now, one of the best quotes I have found for this group is that is from International Record Review. If one guitar quartet can give a traditional string quartet a run for its money, in terms of abundant technique and breathtaking artistry, it's the Aquarelle Guitar Quartet. I think that's a beautiful quote. <laughs> so without further ado, a huge thank you and um, hello to Mike and Ruri. How are you both doing today? Very well, thank you. Thanks. Yes, very well. Thank you. It's a huge honour and pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's launch into these questions. From your biography and your website, I've seen that you've all been together since 1999 when you were all students at the Royal Northern College of Music, which is also my alma mater, so I'm very proud of that. <laughs> How on earth have you survived 20 years, over 20 years with one another? Um, well, it's been quite easy, actually. Uh, the quartet in its original state actually had two different members originally. Um, my, myself and Vasilis are the original uh, two members left, and then um, we had uh, James Jervis join, and then finally Rory joined us. How many years ago, Rory? Wowza, 2006. So it's still quite a while. That's still um, quite a 15, that's 15, 15 years. years. <laughs> yeah, 15 years. Do you give each other plaques when you make it a certain yeah. amount of time? <laughs> In our quartet, it would be it would be a whiskey glass. <laughs> ah, well, it's useful. Like you said, to, to have the group last as long as it has, it has been down to the fact that we get on so well together and it's such fun to go on tour, travel around. Um, yeah, it's just been a, a real joy to do. And all those years back when we started it, I think if any of us, any of us had been told that we'd have had so many CDs out and done what we've done uh, for a guitar quartet, especially, I think we would have um, laughed at that. But it's been, an, it's been a great, great ride. Yeah, I think it's important that none of us take ourselves too seriously. We play music that we enjoy, we love, and therefore there are very few 
instances where we actually lock horns together and have a bit of a, a bicker. We generally get on incredibly well in rehearsal. Of course, there are tensions, and the usual things one finds in chamber music groups. But generally speaking, I think because we just love what we do so much, it's um, quite easy to maintain friendships even, even when rehearsing and performing. So we, we are lucky. One of the things that I find interesting about guitar is that it um, it doesn't have the same kind of 400 year tradition um, that, you know, a violin or a viola or a cello would have with like a string quartet, for instance. Um, and it doesn't seem that it's particularly common for guitar quartets to exist in the world. So how did you find yourself gravitating towards chamber music in this way? When we were at the Royal Northern College of Music, we studied under um, the amazing guitarist Craig Ogden, and he was very keen for guitarists to be exposed and to, well, to hone their ensemble skills, just because everyone expects to be the next John Williams or Julian Breen going through college. But there are so, very few guitarists actually try the hand at the ensemble genre. And he was very keen for us to do that. And it was just a real, it was just an enjoyable experience making music in that way and something that none of us uh, right at the beginning had even thought about doing. When, when we started uh, playing the music that was given to us, we did some more research and then we found um, some really famous groups such as the um, uh, Romero brothers uh, and also the uh, at the time when we were at college, the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. So that was obviously quite a uh, inspiration for us uh, and showed us that it can be uh, a viable medium on the concert platform. To be honest, I've, I felt throughout my time at college, I gravitated towards chamber music, but the more traditional guitar chamber music, guitar and violin, guitar and flute, guitar and cello, guitar and voice. When the quartet released their debut disc, uh, Promenade, I was actually, I was there at the, uh, the launch concert um, and I was a fan. And I had never been exposed to guitar chamber music in a quartet form. Duos, yes, because John Williams and Julian Bream had played together and there are countless amazing guitar duos out there. But it was only through learning about the Aquarelle Guitar Quartet when I was at college that I then looked into other guitar quartets. And actually it was sort of, it was quite exciting seeing four guitars play together. The problem that you get with chamber music in places like music colleges is you get quartets or trios who play together for a few months or maybe a year or two, and they never quite gel. When I then started listening to the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet and the Romeros, it was like, oh, wow, no, these can sound good, but these are guys who are taking it incredibly seriously. One of the early projects that you participated in was Live Music Now, which is a program founded by Yehudi Menuhin uh, that places musicians in community spaces. So. What do you believe is the value of this kind of community involvement for members of the local community? I think having music being taken from the concert hall and from cities and towns into local communities, into places where music would not normally be associated. So um, traditionally with live music now, the likes of care homes, uh, old people homes, prisons, schools, the job I think of musicians to inspire the next generation and in an age where classical music in particular is less respected by the younger generations than pop music I think it's trying to educate people that classical music and obviously especially with the guitar 
the more world music side, Latin American, folk music, we all know as musicians that there are countless genres that classical musicians can, uh, can perform. And bringing these styles of music to these people who don't normally hear it is really important. I think it's one of our duties as musicians. Mike, what do you feel is the value for the artists? Uh, the value for the artists is um, trying your hand at performing and uh, putting on a show for uh, not your regular concert going audience. Um, if, I mean, in a regular concert, people who pay the, the subscriptions to the concert series or for the one-off concerts, they obviously want to come and hear you. Um, and they may have heard you before on the radio or things like that. So they, they have an idea of what to expect. So they've, it, as in terms of um, putting on a show and performing, that makes it a little bit easier, knowing that they're there to hear you and that they've paid the money. Um, for the Live Music Now audiences, it's something new. They may not have even known in the morning that they were going to hear us, and it's trying to hold the attention of uh, that type of audience. And it, you, you can hone your um, performing skills that way, I think. One little story, I actually have a confession to make. I was never on Live Music Now because I joined the quartet after, after their time. Uh, but I did take part in a similar scheme uh, called Lost Chord, which is bringing music to dementia sufferers in a particular area in, in Yorkshire. There was this wonderful occasion when I turned up at a care home and started performing. And there were a couple of things that happened. We've, we've had people boo us off the stage, mm -hmm. people who just really don't want to listen. But then wonderful stories where you have a lady or a gentleman sat in the corner in their chair, looking rather forlorn sometimes, and suddenly you're playing maybe a medley of World War II songs that you've arranged for whatever chamber music group you're in, and suddenly they start humming along, or even better, occasionally they start singing along. Mm. And I've had occasions where a nurse has come up to me, or a carer, and said, you won't believe it, Evelyn over there, she hasn't spoken for six months. Oh my goodness. Wow. And she's just sung the words to the White Cliffs of Dover. And it's an extraordinary moment when I think music therapy is a huge thing throughout the world. And in fact, one of the members who, who isn't here, um, James, his wife, Rachel, is currently embarking on a series of projects in Alderhey Children's Hosp Hospital bringing music therapy to the children there. And some of the stories that she has told her are inspirational and very, very moving and bringing music into very, very sad and very traumatic environments and watching the effect that it has on those people who are going through something potentially very terrible in their lives and how music can lift their spirits and, 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 and soothe young children. Ensemble is signed exclusively with Chandos Records. What does that mean to be exclusively signed to a label? I think it means we've had a great relationship with them. Yeah. They've been hugely supportive. Yeah. Uh, they've been a huge pleasure to work with. They have embraced our ideas and they have given us full artistic control 
an editorial control of all of our recordings. Uh, we, we are hugely privileged to be in that position. We have a, an idea as a quartet as to how we want to sound. And we've evolved that sound, actually. Some of our projects have, have had more of a produced sound, Final Cut in particular. Some of our recordings, like Spirit of Brazil, have a more live feel to them. And Chandos have always gone with our suggestions and let us have free reign. So we are hugely indebted to them. So I do want to talk a little about how this agreement came about between your ensemble and a label. How do you go about finding this? Because I don't think every Jamin musician knows how this works. I don't know how this works. Well, in, in this case, uh, basically, the Chandos have been quite um, pleased with the recordings that we've put out. The, the, most of them are very themed in title and like content. Uh, we spoke with them and said we had this idea to work with uh, this Brazilian uh, jazz singer and pianist called Clarissa Saad. And we've had a long running relationship with her. Uh, well, she actually wrote our first commission that we did as a quartet that went on uh, our first oh. CD with Chandos. Um, and that was because we were introduced by uh, her father, who's a very famous guitarist and one half of the uh, legendary Assad Brothers guitar duo. Uh, but basically she'd written a quartet um, for the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. Um, but at the time, um, one of their members was on sabbatical, so they were trying different members out and they weren't performing just quite as much. So um, Sergio Assad, her father, suggested that uh, she sent the piece to us. And um, so we were very lucky again to um, have a world premiere recording of that piece. Um, and that led to us asking her to write um, uh, the uh, three movement work called Dances Nativas that she wrote for us back in, I think it was 2006, seven, I can't remember exactly, but um, yeah. And we've always had a lovely relationship with Clarice um, and the idea came up to collaborate on a recording uh, and um, the opportunity arose and the, uh, the record label got really behind it and everything was set up for uh, June of 2020 to go into the studio and record this CD but unfortunately life had other plans <laughs> due to world events yeah that was um, cancelled and we still have yet to know what will happen with that project so we're going to change track a little bit away from performing and recording you all teach at both school and university levels through a mixture of master classes and private lessons and ensembles and all sorts of things like that. What musical skills, knowledge and genres do you prioritize when introducing young beginners to the guitar? And also I'd like to add, how do you introduce them to ensemble playing? As a personal thing, what, what I tend to suggest is, um, now I teach at a, an all boys school and as you can imagine, uh, the guitar is quite popular among the, the <laughs> among the boys there they have aspirations lots of them have aspirations to be the next like massive in a big band playing electric guitar on stage and what have you especially with the guitar to learn the electric guitar it's a tablature based system basically which is very instrument specific and not trans it's not a transferable skill so i always suggest to um the boys that i teach if they're just starting up uh, playing the guitar that they do start on the classical just because it gives them a really good grounding in technique uh, and also the um, the ability to read music which would obviously go hand in hand with their 
uh, academic work that they may have to do or things like that. So I always think that's the best route to take. And then uh, once you get to a certain technical proficiency, it's a much easier transition to make if they do want to play the electric guitar at that point. I'm hugely privileged to do some teaching at the Royal London College of Music, where we all studies. And my responsibility there is mainly chamber music. To go back to your question, I think the most important thing I try to communicate with the musicians and the guitarists in college is listening. It's as simple as that. The amount of excellent groups, technically excellent groups, who have their heads in their music, they're focused on the notes, on the technique, and they're just not listening. And it's such a difficult skill to teach because either people do it or they don't, but to keep on at them, always listening, heads up, listening. What sound are you making? Because at the end of the day, they're not gonna have someone sat there saying, you're playing too loud, you're playing too quiet, you're dragging, you're holding everyone back, whatever it is, you're rushing. That's what we normally get in our group. There's always one of us rushing. It's never Mike, he's known as metronome Mike. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's the ability to listen. And in speaking to some singers, just throughout our professional lives, it's quite interesting that often singers continue to have lessons even into their professional careers and much later on, whereas the rest of us seem to think, oh, we've left college, we know everything, it's fine. The great thing about being a chain musician is that you're working with people who can be your teachers. In our quartet, we frequently ask each other for advice or we give each other advice, whether it's asked for or not. <laughs> Nevertheless, are working with people who help us and one of us can sit out and listen to the other three play and give advice. But it's really important that, that students learn these skills whilst they're at college so that when they do leave, they've got this ability to self-tutor mm -hmm. yeah. and for groups to figure out what's going on. So yeah, listening. It's all about listening. In terms of rep, I think you can learn a lot from most different types of rep. I mean, traditionally speaking, I suppose Baroque music, early classical music just for the ease of three different parts, a hierarchy, balancing parts. When you get into more contemporary compositions where the parts are intertwining, it's a little more difficult to balance, but yet that's where the more fun, interesting work goes on. And rhythmically, we love as a quartet, we love anything with a bit of an interesting rhythm. And I think that guitarists generally who study a lot of chamber music end up being relatively good with rhythm because we play so much Latin American inspired music with more complex rhythms that uh, learning these things is, is something that we sort of often try and encourage the, the students to do at college because, again, it's giving them that grounding in good rhythm, good listening skills. So taking this in a slightly different direction, what are your priorities in selecting repertoire for programs? Do you have a like an overarching philosophy or a mission in what it is that you want to present to your listeners? We don't have a philosophy. I think what if we had a philosophy, it would be that we play music that we all find interesting and we believe if we are passionate about a piece of music, I, I believe that comes across in a performance. Whereas if you play something that you're not so sure about, maybe you can't give 
as convincing a performance in concert with that. So when we've uh, recorded CDs or we have a new idea for a piece for concert, uh, that individual just takes it into a rehearsal and said, what do you think about this piece? And we will discuss the pros and cons or the merits of it. And generally, we tend to like the same types of music as well. And we can hear uh, why it would work in a quartet medium. Actually program the concerts. As Mike said, it's all just music that we love and that we hope other people will love. And it really... We, we don't sort of program a Spanish concert or this concert or that concert. They're very much um, like a recital disc where you just have a collection of different pieces of music that kind of work together. And it's a, it's a journey. It's going, we, we think about building the sort of um, momentum of the gig and then throwing in a little bit of a sort of a dip to bring people back down with something a little bit more sort of relaxing and then we bring them up again. And that's pretty much it. There's no particularly scientific way. It's what do we think follows this piece well? And it's not to do with key or all these sorts of things. None of that. Just what sounds good next to each other. We had, I mean, we actively sought some more um, sedate, relaxing music because it was levelled. This is at one point early on that, we were the most high octane guitar ensemble certain people had ever heard because it was uh, everything was super fast, very intricate, and we very rarely had downtime in a concert. And um, again, that's taking on advice from people that we've trusted that have heard the concerts. And uh, since then, we've we've found some really beautiful uh, lyrical, relaxing music, and so, certain pieces like that have become kind of like our signature pieces in the end. What roles do each of you play with the administrative part of the ensemble? Because obviously this is not like an orchestra where you have your orchestral manager and your HR person, all these things. Do you have an agent? Do you split it up between the four of you? How do you balance all of this? Uh, when we initially started, we took on everything ourselves and um, it was a real, like, trial by fire way of working it was we, we'd never we were never taught how to market ourselves as a group at college uh, and once we all graduated it, that's it you've got to go out into the big wide world and make a living get those performances in and just to interject just there supporting professional studies is huge now at the rncm they, they have they have swathes of different options create your own website record promotional footage how to market yourself so I think they, they really have taken that on board. Sorry, go on, Mike. I mean, with guitar, it's just that stage harder as well because we obviously we're not an orchestral instrument. So uh, it's finding work, solo work, or indeed just recital work as, a, as an ensemble, which is what we did. Um, but we found that 
you play to people's strengths and uh, skill sets that they have. Um, I dabble in uh, graphic design, so I did all the promotional material, uh, put together packs to send out to promoters. Um, Vasilis at the time was incredibly up on the whole technical thing about putting websites up, which was quite still a fairly infant uh, for ensembles to be doing that. Um, so yeah, we we each took took a role on in that respect. Rory is, as you can hear on this podcast, is incredibly eloquent, has a great <laughs> voice. As we call him Mr. BBC. Uh, so he did a lot of the phone calls, uh, calling promoters, um, letting them know if we were in the area or if like so that we could tie a, a performance in with something else. Um, so yeah, it, we worked in that way for quite a while. Then we did. Um, for many years, we did have a management company um, and we had to relinquish some of that. Um, it was hard at first, just um, not being in, in charge of how you go about promoting yourselves. But we, yeah, at that point, we just had to let go a little bit, I guess. But the self-promotion is, it can be a real full-time job. And I think, I think, you know, we were doing, my God, was it, two mornings a week um all four of us working together so probably eight hours or so a week of self-promotion and and other things in between so we'd then go off with our individual tasks and we'd have a little bit of a production line going on and what we felt really strongly was that promotional material had to be high quality mm -hmm. so the packs that mike designed were amazing beautiful um like a i don't know it's like a sort of brochure that you open up and there's a CD inside, promotional CD inside, great, you know, colorful graphics and quotes and biographies and every single person, because there are so many people within the concert sort of society network in the UK who are of an older generation. They're maybe verging on technophobic or they certainly were, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And they want something physical that they can I mean, most of them probably would have preferred an LP, but we gave them a CD that they could put into a CD player, have in the car and listen to as they're driving to the shops or whatever. And I think having that high quality material made us probably stand out at the time from some of our competition. Nowadays, it's all YouTube and uh, whatever else, the other means by which people promote themselves. YouTube is huge and there's some great quality material on there. And I see chamber music groups now with YouTube channels and that's how they market themselves. But I do ask myself the question sometimes, are they cutting out an element of society that hasn't quite got to YouTube yet and would still like that physical CD in their hand? So your ensemble has had a lot of success in traveling throughout the world for performance opportunities. Um, can you speak about how your ensemble has secured these types of opportunities? Um. Well, I can, there's a couple of examples that I can speak of. We did our uh, Asian debut um, off the back of our uh, final cut CD, which mm -hmm. we released. Um, that just uh, really resonated with the promoter in Korea. Um, and that led to a multi-date um, tour uh, with that. That concert was something else. Um, they'd hired out like this huge conference venue uh, they had incredibly high definition screens up behind us um, i can't even remember i think it was 
I can't even think how big it was. It was enormous, but they had visuals from the films that 12 were... 12 foot high screen, maybe? Oh. I'd say 12 foot high and then all the way around yeah. the stage. It was vast. It was vast. Sometimes word of mouth as well. We, we actually did a competition in Spain. One of the judges heard us, invited us to play at his festival in Israel. That was an amazing experience. So, so much of this stuff is word of mouth. It's putting yourself out there hoping that some of these sort of seeds plant away and, and something comes of them. Most of them don't come of anything. And, and I think, again, going back to self-promotions, you plant 100 seeds and two grow. And I think as musicians, we also have to be used to rejection because that's what we deal with most of the time. And then occasionally things work out. I think that's so interesting, though. And I think that that's a good thing to bear in mind is that, you know, just having all of your materials and in place and ready to go and just getting them out there is is really the key um i think sometimes it's it's tempting to either hope that someone's going to find you in some random way or on the other end of things that you're going to be able to just call someone up and say hey i'd like to do this and they're going to be like sure (laughs) (laughs) i think also as like if there's a piece of advice that we can give is um when you are working with promoters, don't be hard work. Like, be amiable with people, be pleasant, accommodate anything as much as you can that the promoter would like to do. Yeah, because that that will lead to recommendations. Like, if you're easy to work with and pleasant, uh, that will lead to more work. We are now at the end of the interview. So a huge thank you to Mike and Rory, half of the members of the Aquarelle Guitar Quartet for giving us all sorts of wonderful information on how they have run their quartet in such a beautiful and successful way. We'll see you all soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Ismail Ledesma and performed by Clarice Assad and the Aquarelle Guitar Quartet. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.